Welcome to the Never Not Creative Podcast. I'm Andy Wright, and in this episode, I'm joined with Trevor Hubbard, who is the founder of Butcher Shop over in California. Welcome, Trevor. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for joining us at a time that uh, is a, it's a little bit hairy around your neck of the woods at the moment. Um, we've, this is our second attempt at recording because it was a bit smoky last time. Was California lots happening we got pandemic we got the beautiful black lives matter movement we got closed office we got remote work we got fires we got lightning storms california is on notice so yeah man it's been it's been hairy right now yeah what what a time to uh what a time to run a creative business huh oh yes nice segue (laughs) (laughs) so um why don't we let's start so that people uh, get to know you better? Because um, I'm sure some people will have heard of uh, Butcher Shop, and also Butcher Shop's responsible for the world's greatest internship project as well, which is really awesome. But uh, let's start with you, so with a, a sort of brief history of your career so far and what got you to where you are today. Yeah, uh, brief history. Okay, um, Butcher Shop is 12 years old, but before that, I guess I got my sort of start. Um, you know, where I was a division one college basketball player who nerded out and hung out in the art studio, um, and, uh, ultimately led me to transfer and be a ski ski bum in Colorado where I studied film studies. Um, and in studying film studies, I think I learned, you know, how to make a pretty good documentary and how to tell a good story and, and, and how to really look for the meaning in, in things. And also, story design is like a thing. It's the basis of all design, right? How do you tell something in, in, in context and then get to use medium to do it? So that was cool. Um, graduated, came back to San Francisco and uh, started building ski jumps, big air, urban, massive structures in Pacific Heights at AT&T Park with pro skiers and snowboarders. And, you know, it was that perfect thing in your early twenties where you have no responsibilities and as many rights as you think you do. Um, and what better to do than to you know, be 20 something and go ask for millions of dollars from PlayStation and Toyota and a bunch of other brands who think you're just as crazy as your parents do. So it worked out pretty well. Um, built that for four years, started an agency at that time called Griffith Stunk It, which was like a blip in my career radar. Um, and then I started teaching at Academy Art University at that time. Um, I dropped out of the master's program there. I just didn't think I was getting enough. And so I went into the headmaster's office or the dean of students and said, hey, what do you think about me teaching a couple classes? They said yes. So I did that. Staffed the first agency with a bunch of uh, um, of my students. We had a great time. Um, and then the economy collapsed in 2008. And it was the best and worst thing to ever happen. Um, I've been kind of an entrepreneur my entire life. So when I see things like this, my first mode isn't oh shit, it's more of like, okay, what does this mean? What are we going to do? What is this, what is this, what opportunities is going to reveal? And the, the, the number one opportunity I could find was start a creative agency in the middle of a recession. So there's your first good idea. Um, so I did that and Butcher Shop was born, um, started it and then brought on two partners. Um, and in 2008 have been building this thing ever since we're now, you know, 35 people in San Francisco with a few in Europe. Um, we've got two offices and we've got an entire venture arm to what we do now. And it's a really fun entrepreneurial place to be great culture um, because of probably things we're going to talk about today uh, around clarity and beating failure. Um, you know, and so right now I sit kind of in this place of being a CEO and an entrepreneur, you know, with a design and filmmaking background, um, where most of the things I do now is really trying to kind of help people be as great as they possibly can. Um, I'm, I'm doing some work, but I'm not necessarily pushing pixels and doing some of those things that I used to, um, being a CEO is a privilege. And when you look at it that way, you really find a good sense of purpose of what being a CEO and executive creator director can be. Um, and that doesn't always mean having the answer just means, you know, having a vision and being a custodian of it and protecting it, but also, you know, trying to get a bunch of young people. I just turned 40, so I'm not, I'm young, but I'm not that young. Uh, (laughs) Trying to get, um, you know, those, those folks to um, find their own sense of purpose in what you're doing. And so that's what I've been doing. And yeah, crazy rodeo it's been journey wise. So 
just realized that um so <clears throat> we've had i think we've had like two or three chats now but um you just told me you're a basketball player i only ever see you sit down so are you like seven foot tall or uh no, I, I'm I'm a diminutive six foot seven. I don't know what it is in meters, six, maybe one one point nine two meters or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, that doesn't sound right. One point. Sorry. All no, it's got to be at least two meters. I would have thought. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I'm not I'm not you know overwhelmingly tall. I just I think I'm well proportioned as a uh, as I've been told. So um, you know I don't I don't look large. So yeah, I mean. What I do now at six foot seven is I'm I'm an ultra marathon runner. On my fortieth birthday, I got off my couch at four a.m. and did a forty mile run to the beach. Um, wow! So you know, big guys can still run. The knees yeah, are okay. Yeah. Um, it's more mental. I'm a I'm a mentalist. The head yeah. game is is uh, where I think I excel, or at least I try to be headstrong, mentally strong. So you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I got your back. If you're short, Andy, I'll, I'll, I got your back. We can, you know, when we yeah, go right. out and in, in, in Sydney or Melbourne, like, you know, we'll, we'll definitely look like Danny yeah. DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know. Are you, how tall are you? Well, I'm just, I just want to clarify here. I'm not, I'm not Danny DeVito. I'm nearly six foot, you know, See, okay. <laughs> but again, well, we just sat down so you wouldn't know, but you've jumped to Danny DeVito where I was going for more like Shaq for you. you know? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, D Danny DeVito still has worth in this world. You know, I didn't mean it like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so butcher shop, you said you, you started out with, um, a couple of partners and now it's all yours as I understand what, what yeah. led to you, um, making that decision and, and buying your partners out? Yeah. Um, okay. So when you go, when Butcher Shop started, I think the best way to look at this is I started it with 250 bucks and an internet connection. I mean, it was there was there was nothing. It was what we could make of it. Um, and I was, uh, um, you know, predominantly focusing on on building a project based agency just because no one would pay us anything else, right? So we had to go fight and win our own projects. And by default, I've kind of acquiesced to become a pretty big proponent of the project based model. Right. And so when we looked at the business, um, there were two brothers that uh, one was a software engineer and the other was you know, a photographer that had a pretty good reputation in like the music world and everything. And so when you have that, it's connections to brands and businesses. Um, and so it, it, it made sense. And then I occupied the role of really being the strategic leader and the creative director. And, and for a very large part of the time, the only designer and creative on our team. Um, and, you know, the first five years of building this business, you know, it was consensus, right? It was, you know, three people mm -hmm. trying to build different arms of their agency. And like we had never written, written a business plan. We had never written a vision or a mission statement. And that's kind of what we were helping companies do, but we had never done it on ourselves. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting, right? I bet you a lot of people um, know what that's like. Every agency. Yeah, every agency. So for the first five years, we, we essentially said yes to everything because that's sort of how you build a business. You don't say no, you say you say yes. And you figure out what worked, what didn't work. You figure out where you got burned. You figure out where you excelled. You figured out what felt painful, figure out what felt really good. And from there, you start to kind of like grow. You start to become who you're supposed to be as, a, as an agency. Um, so it's highly reactive in the first kind of five years of business. And then when you start becoming you know, have a measure of success. And by success, I define that as like revenue, right? You start making mm -hmm. more money. Um, Decision-making can, can fracture, uh, you know, a partnership if it's not clearly defined who's doing what. Not every hiring decision, not every creative decision, not every strategic decision or budget decision. Um, it's not efficient to have three people finding the time to come together to discuss every detail of the business, right? So, one of the things in buying the partners out was that we grew it to a place where decisions needed to be made, right? And the three of us were not, you know, traditionally trained leaders or CEOs in agency businesses. But given my background and stuff, I sort of became, you know, the the, the face and the leader of this company, um, you know, building the teams, being the sort of cultural sort of representation of what this place was. Um, so much so that I tattooed our freaking logo on my ribcage, right? So it means it meant something, um, and it and it was a place that was very close to my heart in building this company. Um, so the second five years um, was sort of us trying to figure out how we would 
retroactively structure a leadership. And the ultimate decision um, came from a bunch of our clients sort of showing my partners opportunities for them to go with those opportunities. So um, one of the partners left to a company that we invested in and became the CTO. Um, and then his brother um, had another spinoff agency that we created here that just is photo and video content, right? And so that became its own thing. And so when I came to do the buyout as a proposal with them, it was not exactly easy. It was very hard and painful. Um, so if I could offer any advice to people listening to this, if you're engaging as friends on any business, any endeavor, it doesn't matter how small it is, ask the hard questions because it's not, it's going to be a lot harder to answer those when you have money involved and when you become successful, if you become successful. So, you know, ask, ask the question, what happens if one of us wants to leave? What happens if, if, uh, you know, somebody doesn't want to be here? How, what, how do we value the company? Where would we get that number? What's the protocol? You know, how do we increase one salary? Who makes hiring decisions? All, all of these things matter and they shouldn't be glaring issues. They can be sort of avoided. So, so my fight was, you know, um, you know, something I didn't necessarily um, find enjoyable at all or something I wanted to do, but it was the right thing that I care so much about Butcher Shop to give this company new life by having one owner. And that was myself. Um, mm -hmm. It freed me up to be able to make the hires I wanted to hire, to spend the money where it needed to be spent, um, to open an office in Europe, to do programs like WGI, you know, mm -hmm. to activate equity for equality and the, a lot of the things that we're doing, the venture arm, like all of that was things I couldn't do when I was beholden to uh, two partners. So for two years, they were not really operating in the company, but they own 66% of this business. Um, that's no good when you have, um, you know, the purpose of a business being the current employee's ability to generate future revenue. Yeah. So that's one of the fundamental things that I think people miss in creative agencies is that you've built this company in a brand and you're worth something. You're not worth what you've done. What you've done, you've been paid for. You've gotten your salary. You've gotten all the perks and benefits of that. You've been paid for what that is. The brand in a people services business doesn't really have much value because it's mm -hmm. all about future revenue. What are you going to make? How are you going to make that? And then, do you operate a successful business within a margin that's re that's industry acceptable, 20 to 30%? So that's future. And if you have people that are owning a majority of the company that aren't helping that future, your valuations get all fucked up because you have people that think you're worth what was, and then you're really putting an emphasis on what will be, and that's without certain people. So I think that's a really fundamental thing that people need to do. Um, I'll pause there if you want to ask a question, but I can finish the story, you know. Of, of what happened does did the reliance on project-based work as well help or hinder the valuation because like you just said a business is only worth what's the future and yeah, so sure. you know if your projects are only three months long and that's all the revenue that you can show did you did that how did that factor into some of the conversations you're having well i think there's a few factors and and what's hard about project-based businesses is this you can't project more than three four months out right but you also don't get into aor and retainer where you can point to any one two or three clients that are such a big portion of your revenue that if they go away you know you're screwed or you have to fill it so what you do is you say okay we've been in business for 12 years right that's a lot of freaking data to show how we're growing how we're projecting how our projects come through what the frequency is you know, not any one of our clients is more than 10% of our revenue, which is way better than having a bunch of agency of record clients where one or two or 30% of your revenue, like that's, that's not good either. So for us, it's still the same brass tax. It's still EBITDA, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's still, you know, your profit, your net profit margin, right? 20 to 30%. Um, and it's also managing and controlling and showing that you know how to run a business with your headcount. Headcount is one of the most often misunderstood things that uh, agency leaders and owners don't really know how to manage that to a to precision. Then you you then you put in the project based kind of model where you don't have the predictability to show where your headcount needs to be or where it 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 should be. Um, and so you have to kind of create your own little model 
that shows you how revenue ties into expenses and gives everybody sort of like a nice round number that mm -hmm. if we're doing 10 million in revenue, that means that we can have 28 employees, right? If we're doing 12 million, that means we can have 32 employees, right? Yeah. It shows us where that is. And if you start, what I look for for us as a project-based business is just when we start to have trends. Trends are a really important thing to kind of look at. And, and you combine that with your pipeline, you should be pretty good to kind of see what you can and can't do. Yeah. yeah. Did you have that awkward, uh, I'll never forget, there was an episode of, um, do you ever listen to Startup with Alex Bloomberg, the Gimlet Media podcast? No, no, no. So there's this, he, he starts up um, this podcasting company. He was ex uh, This American Life and Planet Money and, and that kind of stuff. And um, I remember he finds a business partner and they both go away and he goes, All right, you know, I'll, you can be a, I'll bring you on as a co-founder. And they both go away and they write numbers down on a piece of paper and then come back to each other. And the valuation was just so different, <laughs> like... Alex is going, he's like, you can have like, I don't know, I think it was something like five or 10% of the company. And the other guy's going, oh, well, you know, it's a co, it's a partnership. So probably looking at somewhere between, maybe not 50, because he started it, but like somewhere between 30 and 40. And there's it's just silence and this really awkward um, negotiation around how, and they, because they, they recorded it all. Um, it's a really like fascinating episode. It's, but it's so real. Massive awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. It's it, it really is awkward. And I think that that's why people need to understand how you frame things up. We just lack we just lack context shifting. We just mm -hmm. lacked each other's context. And I love that example, because you're right. The person's story or, or narrative is what they believe. It's their perception, right? And yours is different, but it's the same. So yeah. part of that is like, do you do you want to fight perceptions? Or do you want to go back a couple steps and prevent that from even happening, right? And yeah. there's ways to do it. Um, but yeah, but in the case of, of, of my partners, you know, like I, I, I feel like when the buyout happened two and a half years ago, it was, it was probably the biggest moment in my life because it, it up to that point, besides my kids being born, because you realize now that like, everything is on your shoulders. You know, I had to finance this myself. The buyout was not cheap. It's not, it's not something you just like write a check for unless you have that type of dough, which, you know, I didn't. Um, but you're taking on all the risk now. It's a, it's a big problem. And one that probably could have avoided and I probably didn't have to pay as much as I did if I would have figured this shit out and not had the awkward pass the paper with a number on it back and forth on the table yeah. that you were describing, right? Like that, <laughs> no one wants to do that. Like that's that you only do that if you have all the money that you could ever possibly want. And then you're just kind of playing a game, but that's, that shit's tough, you know? Yeah. But no, no, I mean, no one teaches you that stuff either, do they? But you're, you're like, you're I right. That conversation, would. that conversation at the beginning, I will I'll never forget. We sat, I, I had an agency with two co-founders um we sat in our accountant's office at the very beginning before we'd even like the before the name had been registered or any of that and he goes oh, uh, oh. so what happens when you know one of you wants to leave and we just <laughs> looked around and said nah that's not gonna happen like why would why would why would that happen um and and so we just kind of glossed over all of that stuff of like you know what it was in the contract and you know naively clearly um, and then there was, you know, like, how are you going to value the business? Those things that you were talking about, like when you, uh, when you go to sell it and like, oh yeah, but we, you know, we're not going to sell for like maybe, you know, 20, 25 years, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, I, I was out in four or five and I wish we had done all that stuff better at the beginning. Also just to just lay the, make the conversation as rational as possible, right? Like not emotional. And, and, and if you've got things that you can refer back to and things that you agree, then it becomes just a rational business conversation. Um, and it's, it's too, yeah, it's, but, it's, it's too hard. It's too hard. Being a rational business person is learned. You yeah. are not that by nature because we are emotional yeah. human beings and that's the problem. So you're spot on. Like, you know, we're basically talking that. prenups, aren't we? Prenups. Yeah. Business. I mean, I, I don't think it's, as romantic as the prenup, you know, um, I, you know, I, I actually don't know anyone with a prenup, so I, I've never even gotten that perspective, but I can tell you 
you know, you've gone through it. You've sat there. You are an agency guy. You, you know that I can, if anybody here is in an agency or, or starting one, it will not be your first, last, second to last, third to last thing that you do. Mm. So just know that like there, like if you think this is it and it is not, if you're under 50 years old, you will have incredible journey of, of many, many different endeavors. That is just the way life works, especially for creatives. How many creatives, you know, that can sit for a steady period of time and not get bored on business, very freaking few. Right. So I just, you know, I totally subscribe to this. And also Andy, like, I think you or I should offer up helping people understand like these pitfalls, you know, cause mm-hmm. like you're not safe if you're not having these hard conversations and it sucks and it's painful yeah. and it will destroy other parts of your life. I had to grow this agency. We had the best year ever, but I was also going through the most brutal battle I've ever had in business mm-hmm. with, with my partners trying to do those two things at once and still find time to be a good human and be a good partner and a father was the most difficult, daunting things I've ever done. And it sucked. It was brutal. I think I aged like 10 years during that time. Like it just, so if I could help any young person or people starting this endeavor to like avoid that by making it fun conversation rather than burdensome, I think that's, that's one thing to offer because it's, I just don't wish that for anybody. Hmm. Yeah. The thing that I've really liked around what you've done with Butcher Shop now is, and we sort of talked about it just before we came on air, which is like what also gets you through pretty tough times is knowing what you're all about. And you mentioned even just leadership, like getting that vision right, helping other people understand it, helping other people finding their meaning and purpose at work. Uh, Again, something that we're not taught. um, But do you want to walk us through a, a a fairly quick way of just um, going like what butcher shop is all about for you now. Like now you do have it in your grasp and it is basically your kind of vision for the, for the company. Yeah. um, I'll do it quickly. So, so I think for butcher shop, we needed an ethos and an ethos that was authentic to us. Right. And something that like pretty much was an extension of, of myself Mm -hmm. and the ethos at butcher shop is help people very different than what I think most agencies consider. But that help people really defines who we are, and it runs as the filter to everything we do. Um, you know how we innovate our client partner relationships, how we innovate our partner network, how we look at our culture, you know, as a crew of people, how we define ourselves as high performing outsiders, how the things that we actually offer are building trust and creating value in all that we do. Every single touch point with the client partner is an opportunity to either deplete trust or build it up further, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, help people. What products do we want to focus on? That gives us our entrepreneurial permission to see an opportunity in the market or something our client wasn't going to do where we think that other people would benefit from it and go out and make it and build it. Similar to what you do, where you see these opportunities and you're like, oh, well, that there's a, something I can make that's of value and that other people might find it valuable too. It allows us to do those things, but it's always coming from the lens of helping people. During COVID-19, just to kind of like put it into context and example, COVID-19, I think a lot of folks and companies were really scared. And it's because, one, they didn't really have that ethos or where or, or know where to kind of put this energy. And my team, my crew, this company, you know, because because we have that ethos of help people, this beat failure culture, right? And those things are ingrained in all that we do, um, you know, that lack of clarity that breeds drama in most companies wasn't there for us. And we had ways that we were going to get way out in front of what was going on. And we did. And I think we did it faster than a lot of people. And so I wrote this piece called 10 things that made us smile during COVID-19. And I think like that still is carrying us through from a momentum perspective. It's not perfect, but I think that we did more than most. And that only happens if the culture is built to do that. Right. And that, that comes to our vision, which is how do we build a creative agency for the future of culture and commerce? That's a wonderful, robust vision, and we can develop our own narrative within that. And that's lovely. That's what a vision should be. The mission right now is to help leaders turn big ideas into brands that people love. And we do that for startups and the Fortune 500 or teams within those companies. And it's really the the most compelling component is the human, the human component. We don't help brands and companies turn big ideas into brands. We help leaders, people, the people part 
of this business is so fucking important. I just don't know that that's taught. I don't know that young creatives and freelancers or people starting their own little designs, I don't think they understand the human component of this. Every client you ever have is not going to be perfect. They're all going to have their issues. It's going to be their second job. So it's not their first, right? And clarity, lack of clarity is the biggest problem in every company. All problems trace back to a lack of clarity, period. Mm -hmm. So if you can make your life about helping people and, and beating failure through, you know, eliminating this lack of clarity, you stand for that. You teach young people that fucking a man, you can move mountains if you do that. And nothing is as scary. It's hard, but it's not as scary. So I think that's what I've been able to do with butcher shop, which is to really live this type of thinking with full buy-in. Whereas when you have partners that are 50, 50 on you as a human being or a person, it's, it's real hard to, to, to find joy in that, you know, um, because I'm a human, we all have these feedback loops and we want people to buy into us as much as we're buying into them. And I think that that's, that's what one of the biggest differences. And then from there, that's the ingredients to, to, to skyrocket, to do some amazing things, you know? I mean, and that, fear of failure is a is a big thing for for younger people you know i've had chats recently with people who've gone where, where their their kind of anxiety kicks in because they're worried that something they are responsible for or something that they might do could bring a business down and that's like in a one way that's a really good thing because the creatives are kind of you know they're going to wear their hearts on their sleeve and they're going to care about your business actually sometimes more than you know i, I think it's pretty common that agencies often feel like they care more about their clients business sometimes than their clients do and but so there with that comes this idea that you know if i fuck up then geez everything's going to go to shit and this business might go out of business and there's been this sort of i guess trend trying to buck that in the past which is you know we, we've been talking about failing fast and i think i understand the sentiment but i wonder if that sort of original sentiment isn't perhaps as well as understood these days and and now you're doing which i kind of really love this idea of everything you can not to fail so what what does that look like for for you guys yeah. and also when you're working with with clients andy you said something i think that's it's kind of important right and it's really understanding like the humans and you've been doing a lot of work with mental health and like these mm -hmm the top five reasons of what leads to sort of a decrease in mental health at organizations. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I assume clarity from your leadership is like up there in yeah, know, yeah, it's right super in the high, five. right in the top five. I'd make an argument that even the top things above those are stem from this lack of clarity. And what you said was that young people put a lot on their shoulders around this idea of success, right. And failing that it could destroy the company or whatever. What you just said, is a made up narrative in someone's mind mm -hmm. that is causing stress, which is not real. Stress is nothing more than your, your mind and your consciousness filling in this narrative of things that are unknown that haven't even happened yet. Right. And that's what you focus on. It's real, you know, um, and that leads to burnout. But what significantly leads to more burnout, right, is shitty clients. Well, if I don't believe that there's such a thing as a shitty client, then what do I believe? What I believe is that there's a lack of clarity and you can find it. And if you know how to mitigate it, you can get so far out in front of it that things don't happen that lead to failure. And so what we subscribe to here at Butcher Shop is something that's really, really, really fucking important. I'm born and raised in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, right? I've seen 600 startups walk through Butcher Shop's doors over the years. I've worked with dozens of VCs, right? The people that are funding these companies, right? This is where we cut our teeth. This is how we built our business. And the one thing that I can tell you is that the list of what makes a company successful or what would make a project successful probably has five or six of the same things on it every single time. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful. What those things do is they, 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 they shape no perception, no plan, no strategy around, well, what are all the things that could happen that would make those six things on this list or three things or whatever it is that they freaking walked in the door with? What would make those things fail? And so the Facebooks of the world, all these fail fast, stupid ass cultures that have these, <laughs> these, these 
posters made on their $10,000 letterpress machines that they buy for culture purposes, all that shit. The, the, the thing that I think is really unfortunate is that somehow this idea of failing is the only way to succeed. That is such horseshit. What if you could change your entire mindset where you get predictive and you say, okay, we have this thing we're trying to do, group, come together. Let's all talk about what are the things from everyone's personal point of view, company point of view, client point of view, what are all the things that can make us fail, right? What would make this brand project fail? Mm -hmm. What would make this product fail? What would make this launch, this campaign, this creative, this new startup? What, what would make this fail? And when you do that, your list gets fucking long and it gets with it gets filled with unpopular thoughts. It gets filled with all this data and information from Jenny over there who was in marketing that realized that she has no concept of what she's doing. And, and the CEO thinks he knows his audience, but has no idea. So the marketing people can't do their job. It's like, wow, within an hour, we can find that and talk about failure real quick. And so we do these things where we make the emphasis on failure, beating it. Because I, 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 I subscribe to this idea that you can get so far in front of these things and develop strategies to not let them happen. The problem is the prioritization. How do you know what to do first, second, and third? Mm -hmm. And so we can talk about that and the Clarity Project and beating failure and the things that we do with the pre-mortem app. But this is so huge for us. And this is like what we did. We've done for every client project. It's what we've done for COVID-19. As soon as we sh shut our offices down, we ran a, a pre-mortem workshop where we talked yeah, about right. what would make us fail during this time. Um, and this is real. This is the way that you decrease stress. You talk about failure and then you can have a strategy and then you know what to do next. The problem is most companies don't put an emphasis on beating failure and therefore they focus on success, which creates a bunch of unknowns, which creates the stresses that everyone's leading to, which creates this mental health dilemma that's happening. Right. So I tried to re-engineer that for the world of that we live in. And I just think it's so liberating to talk about fail. Like I have a, I have a shirt that says I am a failure. Like it, it's, it's, it's context, you know, shifting, um, you know, so that's kind of what we're doing and why I think, you know, it's special for, for this time right now. And it, and it also treats causality, right? Rather than, you know, you're, you're trying to get, like you said, you're trying to get out ahead of something. Um, but you're looking at all the things that are causing what could go wrong rather than later on just being prepared and reacting to them. Like there's a certain amount of confidence that can come through from being able to kind of go, well, almost, there's probably even a little bit of satisfaction that comes through of like, oh, that happened. We knew that was going to happen. Like that must make everyone feel good. Totally. You're, you're spot on. And, and I, I, I bet you you do your own version of this in some way. And I, I'm sure that you kind of think about this because if you're going to lead a team, you kind of have to have the, an innate sense about this stuff. But again, you're then relying on the human to communicate. And that, mm -hmm. you know, I, I always say we suck at we suck at clarity. You suck at clarity. We all suck at clarity. So let's figure out ways that we can get super clear, which yeah. doesn't mean like mansplaining or overly communicating or writing robust words or, or putting it in a really tight brief. That's not the shit I'm talking about. The shit I'm talking about is the context where you can look at these things through a certain lens and actually get real data and real information for clarity. And I think that that's missing. Um, so the way that we sort of do it um, is we'll pick a thing, right? What would make this brand project fail? Or, you know, what would make your remote work yeah. uh, strategy what, what fail? About the, what about the recent one? Like, so when you, just as you went into COVID, what was your, what did this uh, clarity, like pre-mortem look like? Yeah, so um, when we did, so the clarity project, just for context, is this movement that we're doing um, to launch our office in Butcher Shop, in Europe, excuse me, Butcher Shop Europe. And the Clarity Project is one part facilitation, consulting, tech tools, right, and education and things of that nature. But it's really about a mindset around this beat failure mentality, right? And that lack of clarity breeds drama and that you can actually get super clear really fast by maximizing, um, you know, some of those things that are threats to your success. It's like a, it's a really cool thing that we've been doing for a long time. So one of the tools that we built in this virtual world is this pre-mortem virtual app, right? And it's a way to come together um, that uses the pre-mortem process in our own way. It's a way for people to come together and in five minutes, type in all the things that would make our transition to work remote fail, right? Mm -hmm. 
and we got every single person in our company to write all the things, right? It had to do with mental health, sense of loneliness, had to do with our workflow, our client management, the tech tools that we're doing. Like, I think there was even one that, you know, when you're presenting video, it fucking can't stream in a presentation. So figure out an alternative because it's just awful, right? Like, then there's like, what do we do for, you know, hiring? Like, how, how do we kind of grow? What's, are there going to be layoffs, right? Like, that, these are all things that would make us fail during this time. So when people put those in there, uh, put, put those in, we were able to rank them. And the way that it works is you get into groups and you basically on a scale of one to 10, what's the likelihood of that happening, given what we know about each other? And then on a scale of one to 10, what's the catastrophic impact it would have? 10 being we're dead, we're out of business. One being it's fine, nothing's going to happen. You multiply those numbers and you get a big number. And in doing this exercise for all of these things, right, that we you know, grouped into the big bucket items, you were able to see the prioritization, what we had to watch out for, right? And in that, then we asked the question, what do we need to think, do, have, know, what are the dependencies, and who's accountable, responsible for not letting it happen? One person, right? And it was easy for us to then quickly go in and answer those questions, which then essentially became our strategy, right? Each of those things then needed to have an answer. It you know, one of the biggest ones was communication. How do we update policies? How do we, how do we do? So one of the things that we had to do was eliminate our Slack channel from becoming an information, a misinformation portal where people were sharing COVID-19 updates and policy updates. And, 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 I, and it was easy for us just to eliminate that. And then we needed to have our, you know, work remote handbook. So we created the work remote handbook, right? It gave us all these things that we could start to answer in context based on priority, because the big numbers we needed to address small numbers kind of work themselves out as you move through the things on the big number and everyone was a part of this process so they can know they could see right yeah. one of the one of the big ones was leadership not being transparent during this time and one thing that i committed to was every single day work day since covid-19 on march 7th closed our office i have written a 200 to 500 word email to our entire employees our entire staff our crew and in that is financial information, new business information, updates on policies that we're doing, sharing a little bit of my personal life of what I'm doing with my kids, you know, um, coming up with an idea to go on morning walks. And if people want to join, like all of these things happen within my email. So what I did is I created the space for that transparency, but it also gave everyone in the company an expectation of when the day was ending, because in work remote, we tend to spill over into seven, eight. 9 p.m., 10 p.m. It's just, it's a never ending work day. So this kind of stuff was only possible if we did this pre-warning because otherwise it would have been full of subjective opinions, one or two people having a plan and everyone sort of not participated in knowing. So this gave us all the things we needed to be successful during this time. It was super helpful. So I, I bought into this as soon as you were telling me about it. I was like, oh yes, this is great. And so I was trying to do like the other side of it. Is there anything that this, like, does it stop some things? And obviously like you need a lot of freedom for creativity and you want to be able to actually push some boundaries and you want to be able to feel a little bit of fear as you're doing something for that kind of excitement. Is there, I'm a, personally, I don't think there is, but I'm kind of interested to see whether you think at any point, like, is, are there any sort of, downsides to this that you worry about sometimes where if you've headed all this off that it's it can become a little bit too rigid or too little too inflexible or is there any times where you've just kind of noticed that oh maybe if we didn't put that sort of handbrake or that safety net in place we would have done something even more yeah i it's a very very interesting question one that like of course i'm on the side where i'm like give me anything and i can run this against it and it'll be fine i i i think this is where it gets slippery um, it may expose that your idea is shitty. It may, it may expose that what you're doing is wrong. It may expose that your team's not correct. It may expose that you don't have the expertise. It may completely change the direction and cause a lot of un like discomfort. Right. And I don't think sometimes people want that to happen. I think some people are, are sleeping beasts where they just want to kind of stay below the radar. This exposes cracks. Yeah right? This calls people's bluffs. This will tell you if people are really here. One thing I love about this process is when we do it, 
you have an accountability dropdown, right? And in the app, you assign one person to something. What I love about this process is the people that have nothing assigned to them, I ask the question, what the fuck are they doing in the room? <laughs> the people that have too much on their plate, too many things that they were assigned, God, get that person some help. You're under-resourced, right? Mm -hmm. That person's taking, they're not, they're, they're subsequently not going to succeed because they have too much to do. They're responsible for too much. So I'm not saying that it's a catch-all perfect, but I'm saying that it has multiple sort of ways that you can expose some of the things that are maybe like the rough surfaces or the, 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 the rocks below the harbor that you can't see above the water, right? Like it, it helps you fundamentally navigate. And I think that at the core, this is a navigation tool, not something that is a creation stifling tool. I also think creativity in business, like we do, Andy, is much better with constraints. Hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't know of a time where it's like complete, complete blue sky thinking where you can just go like you need constraints. The whole world, the whole business, whether it's budgetary, strategically, personally, whatever it is, there's always going to be constraints. And I think this prioritizes those constraints a lot better so that at least everyone in a room or a team environment knows them rather than just reading them and interpreting them different. Right. That's that's the problem with our briefing cultures. Right. Is that there's so much between the lines that's not understood. Yeah. The brief only, you know, the brief only gets you so far. But then how do you make it? How do you execute it? And how do you do that with a bunch of humans that have a bunch of different maps in their mind of what it might look like? So so I don't know if that fully answered the question, but I think it clarifies that, you know, it can be used for more than one thing. I think that's so true. There's, there's so much between the lines, isn't there? Like, you know, there's, an, and you're right, like that briefing, there's another episode in its own right, the issues with the with the brief where, you writing a brief and you don't want to put too much in there because you don't want to like lead them down the specific path. Um, but then, you know, in your head, there's like quite a specific path and you want to be surprised and yeah, it, but, but the pre-mortem, I like it fills in, fills in the gaps, right? Like it just basically says, you know, that's, we're reading this, uh, we've got a book club at work at the moment, we're reading this book called the culture map. It's very, generalized um in that basically it says people from russia are like this people from america are like <laughs> this but um there's some really interesting concepts in it and we we talk a lot about how different people in our business are high context and low context so yeah. high context means that you're you, you kind of leave a lot for between the lines you assume somebody already knows what you're talking about low context is like you put all the details in there so there's just no you know there's no worries about somebody misinterpreting things um but it's so true. I think in that briefing process, it's it's it can be such a high context um, process because there's only. I mean, often that brief is like a couple of pages long, right? Like, how can you possibly get everything into that? No, um, no. Yeah. And 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 I and I think what you're saying too. It's the brief is for the beauty. The pre mortem app is for the brawn, right? It's yeah. the thing that what 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 I think it, it exposes is the fact that there's a lack of alignment on things and lack of alignment. If you spend 15 minutes in this sort of mindset of pre-mortem and, and, and doing the exercise, it'll save you 15 days, 15 hours, 15 months mm -hmm. of of things showing up that that were avoidable. That's the key word. They were avoidable. Mm -hmm. And. I've been in so many meetings because my life is spent talking to CEOs, right? That's what I do. Like that business development and, and, and us trying to figure out ways that we can work together with people. I, I have pre-mortems have exposed where CEOs say that their company knows X, Y, and Z. We know our audience. We know our product. We know this and this and this. And then in the same breath, you have the team come in and we're all together now in the same boat. And you realize that, the marketing person, the product person, and those other, they have no freaking idea who their audience is, who they're going mm -hmm. after, what the product should and shouldn't be doing now and in the future. Like, are they in the right industry, the right vertical? Is there a bigger opportunity over here? Is the CEO like three years ahead of where they should be, but he's not really understanding right now. This exposes that into a way where you're not pointing fingers at people. 
you now know what to talk about, hmm. right? So much time is wasted in talking about these, these, these analogies or these metaphors of like strategy and what the, it's like, how do you know what to do first, second, third? On top of that, how do you get five, six, seven, eight people on a team to be doing that same thing? And on top of that, how do you get all of them to know exactly what they should be doing and when? Well, this is one way to do that. And yeah. if you value your time, you value your client's time, and you want to build a successful agency or consulting practice, you better have this shit dialed because this is what's going to make or break you for sure. You know? Yeah, that, that clarity. Like, There's so much second guessing that can just derail a project and just waste time like waste and and ultimately waste margin i think because you know you've you've spent time working with someone who is second guessing what their boss thinks and you know their boss has got a completely different idea of what the objective is and where they're going and it uh yeah it can it can derail things pretty, pretty a andy you're gonna you're gonna love this too we did a pre-mortem with a client right and uh one of the things that was exposed is that we were nervous that what would make this project fail is if they brought in their CEO and some of their C-suite people too late in the process. That would derail the work uh, if they were not brought along on the story. We did this with the client. The client knew that. It was their thing. They were responsible for not letting that happen. When it did, we were able to issue like a, I think it was like an $85,000 addendum so that right. we were not in the wrong of trying to have to go and redo the work. They knew it. It was on the pre-mortem. They saw it. They were responsible for it. They let it happen. It was their issue. So when we said, okay, well, we're going to have to go back four steps now and redo everything, that's the price tag for it. And it completely justified it, and it didn't even make it a phone call. It made it an email, which was amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Did that? Um, so does some of this stuff make it into your contracts or like scopes of work? Yes. Yeah, right. The, the pre-mortem is part of our discovery process. And, you know, we, we align on what those agreements are. And then we have this, you know, obviously some things called that we invented called staggering gate, you know, which is, you know, how we get through these gates yeah. and stagger the process. And if we don't get through a gate in time, then it extends the timeline. And we always point the things that cause that from a client's perspective versus the things that cause it from our perspective. And it just helps keep things super equitable, you know, and like mm -hmm. even I mean, to me, the transparency thing is so important um, and, and it's often said, but it's not like, how do you get transparent? Well, this is one way you do it, right? Is mm -hmm. you, you focus on the clarity project, you build an app for a pre-mortem process and you make this a part of your contract scoping business practice with everything that you do. And all of a sudden, you know, 30, 40 minute little exercises here and there turn into massive money savers and money makers yeah. in the sense of, of avoiding some of the things that were pretty obvious but now they're down and you know them and everyone's on the same kind of uh playing field so i'm going to come to the the last question which is when i just read your article recently about navigating a recession and what i've found and listened to quite a few businesses actually now how they're kind of diversifying revenue streams diversifying client base you know like you said it's good to not have all your uh, revenue stuck in in one client um but they're also looking at things that are around recurring revenue and scalable revenue. But you are doubling down on project-based business. Tell me a bit more about how you've been arrived at that conclusion. I, I think project-based is is core to what we do. Um, we do like 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 a lot of agencies trying to play in that future vision of what agencies are to the world. We have three horizons, you know, like we still have our venture arm where we're creating new revenue streams and trying to figure that out. And it's coming much more from a, from a, you know, design thinking, product design kind of standpoint. And then you have our core brand and business services, which is the impact and value of brand. That's core, right? That's the project-based component. Mm -hmm. And then we have brand plus, which is kind of how do we innovate the partner network? Because it really stems from this philosophy we have that brand is everything. You know, most of the inquiries we get, we get you know, are about this one thing. And then we ask about that one thing and they're like, oh yeah, we need to make this one thing because we don't know our audience. We don't know our story. We don't know our perception. We don't know our value. Mm -hmm. We don't know our messaging. We don't have, and they say all these things, but you want this one thing. So how do we know how to build this one thing if none of this is intact, right? Um, so we often say like, you know, your logo, your website, your campaign, your product, your go-to-marketing campaign, all that stuff uh, is, is, is your, is, you know, 
is your brand. Like every single touch point, everything you do is brand. The brand is everything. In the the manner of like why that matters for project based is because brands are evolutionary. They don't stop. There's always projects to do brand work because of the myriad of different touch points, whether it's creating content, campaign, advertising, marketing, those are just all brand touch points. And so for us to to be in that business, it's not about one project, we're done, see you later. It's do one project very well. What else can we take on in those relationships, right? And so we've gotten pretty good at it. Um, And the reason I love project-based is is that your entire company is committed to building trust and creating value. If you're project-based and you fuck up on one project, right, your reputation starts to to catch up with you. That starts to that starts to hurt. Right? So it's project based is painful, but it's also glorious pain. It keeps you good. It keeps you sharp, right? And it helps you have a fighting and winning culture to kind of make sense of these things and to win your next thing, right? And to keep that going. On the business side when it comes to predictability, it's a little difficult, but you also start to realize that you can add things to it. Like we're vertically agnostic. So we never got we never got hamstringed into one vertical where we're going to be the D to D to C sort of specialists, like some of these other agencies, right? Like we are B2B, B2C, B2B to C, whatever you want to kind of make that up human to human. But the big part is that brand is everything. So we understand those fundamentals of the human and the, the business and the brand and how that's all connected. So whether that goes into FinTech, real estate, hospitality, D to C, B2B companies, SaaS, technology, identity, security management, anything that you want to bring, we we can figure out a way to pull out this knowledge, go deep with the client, but then level it all up to this notion that simple is hard, right? And that's what we're really good at. So we're not really selling the subject matter expertise in you know AI, but we are understanding that you as an AI company are trying to talk to humans. And so, yeah, you may tell us your product features, benefits and how it works, but that doesn't mean that we then can't turn around and get that into the right sort of, you know, value-based perception we're trying to create. Right. And so that's, that's where I think like when you become a project-based business, I think more opportunities show themselves. Whereas when you start to go agency of record, it's your client, the day you win, it's the day you're starting to lose it. And when you go for a retainer, you have the fights of your life coming up where you are arguing where the real value is and what you're getting for that money. And it's nice when you have it, but it's gone and then you have to fill it and it's hard. I'd rather take my chances on winning somebody's business through the project that we're going to take on. And I, and I, and I think that's what really works for brand. Um, I, you know, yeah, I think you're right. Like, um, and it's funny, I think it's just that notion of project based sounds very singular whereas actually the way you talk about it is it's um there's a lot of like merging of ideas and continuation of thoughts and projects that actually end up meaning that you just have a more valuable retainer like it's up to you to create the retainer right rather than get the retainer and defend it and i think that's kind of, of how it works is that you know, I, I I always remember like starting with a client, start with a small project. I think we did um, like this brand architecture piece because they just didn't know where all their brands sat and what they were doing and what reason they had for being them summer acquisitions. And it was this tiny job. And then at, it, 18 months later, it's a million and a half dollar client um, because of just the, the trust and the value that you built into the way that you work with them in the process. And then to the point where other agencies have to run their work past you and you're planning the budget for the next year. And that was all off project-based work, yeah. not a retainer with, you know, and you're right. Like I've been on the other side and had an agency on a retainer and I just kept getting this bill every month and I'm just going, I haven't even seen them this month. You know, like this kind of thing of like, you're, you, there's an expectation around, um, you're constantly paying for something, but actually, you know, they might've doubled up in the first month or they've, you know, they've got, we've got more plans towards the end of the year. The, the, yeah. The problem is, is that you just, as a client, you just can't remember all of that. Yeah. That's not your job. You're focusing on other things. So the first thing you see is like, what did I get for this? And I hate that conversation. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it should be, but I love your example, you know, where you were able to draft a million and a half dollars over the lifetime value of a, of a client because they saw value in you and you could keep, you can keep contextualizing the worst that you were doing by constantly delivering 
and that wins you things. And that's a that's an active cycle. I love being in active cycles rather than reactive cycles, right? And I think I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, we have some clients just like you, where you know we we're on our 70th project over five years with five million dollars in billings. I mean, I'd rather have that than than having them on a retainer, you know, where I'm trying to charge them as much, right? And then having them question everything. I mean, it just doesn't work. You're easing into it, right? Like when would you just suddenly meet someone and then after three weeks, give them a million dollars, right? Versus going, okay, well, let's ease our way into it. We'll start with this project. Then we'll, you know, we'll do a little bit more. Then we'll do a little bit more. And it's like, oh, I quite like working with you guys. And then that's totally. when it starts to kind of blossom. You just, yeah. you just have to be mindful of when your, your, your compadres leave. And that's what kills it at companies is when there's regime change or people leave to go on. That's when you lose your client yeah. because you're not going to stay on board unless you've created and diversified who you're impacting in that company. But be careful of that one-on-one -on -one relationship you have in that company because when that person goes, you're out. And it's going to happen. I think that to your point, like the one, the, the client, the second most successful revenue wise client butcher shop has ever had started with me turning down, designing this person's personal book. And I said, I wouldn't do that. But the thing you're working on with this big European company, I want that. And, and I just want everyone to just think about that. You never know where your next big project is going to come from. So please don't get snobby when it may seem like it's small. You have to have the ability to look at the connections of what's happening mm -hmm. here. Because that led to everything from that turning down of that book design has carried through and brought us to the launch of the pre-mortem app. It's all related. And I, mm -hmm. I could do a whole nother podcast with you, Andy, to show you how all that shit is related to the last five years of how we've gotten here. So it's just, it's, I love that world. I love this world because of how much we can make these connections on things, but we just have to have the right mindset. And I just don't mm -hmm. think most people do, but it's easy to get real easy, mm -hmm. you know? So. Cool. Right. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up there and <clears throat> I'm, I'm just basically going to try and sell you another podcast, maybe one around that, but actually also <clears throat> I would love, I think if we got the guys from uh, world's greatest internship, which we haven't even talked about today, um, but us all chatting about the future of internships could be, could be really cool. Hell, hell yeah. I, I, it's something we're hugely passionate about and yeah, dude, I world's yeah. greatest internship. We, we're we're going to be in Australia, we're going to be in Vietnam, we're going to be in New York, and we're going to be in San Francisco. And and I don't know, signing off, applications are open for 2021 when we get out of COVID. So there's uh, nine stops. Uh, I think that means there's going to be six internships, six interns. So mm -hmm. if you haven't gone to worldsgreatestinternship.co.com. Yeah. Go, yeah, go, go there now and, and apply. It's the trip of your lifetime. Every single person that's been a part of this has, uh, has, um, you know, gotten their dream job on top of that 150 of the people that aren't selected get put in a talent network so that agencies can actually hire them. Um, so regardless, there's a way that you can make it into the eyeball world of, uh, some agencies out there in the world. So yeah, we should definitely do that, Andy. Yep. We will. I'll, uh, I'll put links in the in the notes as well. Where can people find you if they want to reach out after this? Uh, best is LinkedIn. That's yep. the way of the world. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been awesome chatting as, as always. And um, we'll, yeah, we, I think we're following up on a few things as well. But uh, we will catch up again. Stay safe over in with all of the things happening over in California. And uh, yeah, we will catch up again soon. Thanks, Andy. You're awesome. Thanks, mate. Huge thank you to Trevor and Butcher Shop for sharing everything they're doing as a business, but also for all the cool things that they're doing in the industry as well. There's uh, keep an eye out for collaborations between us and them in the future. We're very excited about that. Thanks very much to Streamtime for this episode. You can go check out streamtime.net for everything that we're doing. We have also just launched collaboration capabilities in the product. So things like posts and mentions and activity notifications. Uh, it's all getting quite exciting on that side of things over at Streamtime. So you can go check those out at streamtime.net. 
if you are keen to get involved more or you want to ask things of the community or just get a feel for um, more of the conversations and the types of things that we're doing at Never Not Creative, jump into the Facebook group, just search Never Not Creative. Go check out nevernotcreative.org. Hit us up on Instagram, wherever you like. But um, this community is here for you, so please do make the most of it. And if you like the podcast, don't forget, it's awesome when you rate us, review us. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, go and do that on iTunes or wherever else you can and share with your friends and um, help spread the word. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks. Thanks.